you know, I say to our church family all the time, if we can't get there by loving Jesus, I don't want to get there any other way. You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Thank you for listening to the Young Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're with us. We're just a couple young leaders who care about the future of the church, and we want to bring a fresh perspective on the issues in light of God's Word. I'm Josh Johnson, and I'm here with my co-host, Clay Maynard. What's up, Clay? How's it going, Josh? Dude, it's going good. Brand new year. Yeah, happy new year to you. Happy new year to you too, If I haven't already said that. Yeah, I'm excited about the new year. A lot of possibility. I know a lot of people are looking forward to a better year than we had last year. Yeah, hopefully it's not a dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> are you uh, are you the type to make New Year's resolutions? Um, I wouldn't call them resolutions, really. I'm a goal setter, and I've done a lot of reading and research on goals probably in the last two years. So I used to have a really... I'm going to nerd out on you here. I used to have a really <laughs> terrible time with it because I would just write abstract goals of like, I need to work out more. But as I've done a lot of research, I've read books by like James, the, the book that really transformed it for me was like James Clear, Atomic Habits, mm. making goals measurable and making incremental changes to your life to make something stick. So yeah, I mean, like I have some goals, some are bigger than others, but you know, like one of my big goals this year is I want to run a half marathon by the end of the year. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I know it's on December 4th, the Panama City Beach marathon is the half marathon so i know when it is and i know what i need to do to get there so i'm just kind of going to break down the training yeah. do you have you do you have any goals for this year i, I don't well you, you jumped off and said i'm a goal setter and i just <laughs> like that i like that believe it or not james clear's book is on my short list so i would like to read that soon and by the way josh is a great runner he gets up in the middle of the night and just takes off running um before most people are awake it's i like true. to go to the gym but i do not like running so josh has got that on me that's a it's something i admire um, as far as my goals, I agree with you that it's not so much about a one-time New Year's resolution that's vague. It's more about, you know, are you going to make concrete, small steps toward reaching those goals mm -hmm. that you continually measure and improve on? You know, I've heard it said that it's good to have a January 1st goal, but it needs, needs to... We need to know what that looks like on February 1 yeah. and on March 1 and on June 1. Absolutely. Um, so that we can actually hold ourselves accountable to it. The big one this year is that I read and I write more. Mm. And I don't have any specific thing I want to write. I just want to write about my experiences more. Um, and I want to write as I read God's word. I so are write we more. like, do we need to anticipate the memoirs of Clay Maynard <laughs> this year or a, an upcoming blog from Clay Maynard? <laughs> uh Let's say maybe on the blog, okay, definitely right not, on, dude. <laughs> definitely not memoirs, but uh, at least <laughs> not yet. But I, I'm looking forward to reading as I, re as I read my Bible, writing more, and then just reflecting more personally uh, on where I'm at, because I think those two things will complement one another very well. And then just committing uh, every week to spending time reading. Well, tonight's a big night, Clay. We have our first ever interview on the Young Baptist Podcast. I'm so excited. Dude, episode number two, coming in strong, man. That's it. Clutch. That's right. Well, we have our, like we said, our first ever guest here on the Young Baptist Podcast. And it's our honor to have Pastor Carrie Schmidt joining us all the way from Newington, Connecticut. Carrie, 
Thanks for your time. And we are thrilled to have you on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. And it's a, it's a privilege to be on the second episode and, um, you're starting with a low bar. So all of your other guests, it's no, it's no place to go, but up from here. So <laughs> Carrie, we were thinking just the opposite. Uh, we're, we're actually in the sound booth of our church. We were wanting to ask you, is this the lowest budget podcast you've done an interview on? Oh, I'm sure it isn't. I mean, my own is pretty low budget. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. Awesome. Carrie, before we get started, if you wouldn't mind, could you share a little bit about yourself and your ministry for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with you and what God is using you to do there in Connecticut? Sure. Yeah. Um, I have been married 31 years to my wife, Dana. We have three kids. Uh, all of them are adults, 29 to age 20. Um, they all live near us. Haley, our youngest, just got engaged. Lance serves in ministry with us at Emmanuel. Larry uh, works at an um, insurance company here in town in Hartford, and it's doing well, he and his family. But we uh, have been in the ministry 31 years as well. And uh, eight years ago, God brought us to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Newington, Connecticut, where we have been just fully engaged and immersed in a revitalization work at Emmanuel Church and School. And we just are holding on for dear life and loving the Lord, loving our church family, loving discipling new believers, and just really thankful. God's brought a great team around us, both staff and lay servants and leaders. And we're just uh, really thankful for how God's using them and glad to be on the team with them. Awesome. On our last episode, we took a deep dive into the gospel, but we didn't get too far into the gospel's impact on our sanctification. Um, and Carrie, we were hoping you'd speak into this. Um, I believe you've done a, a tremendous job teaching and preaching a gospel-centered Christianity. Um, so could you speak to the differences between living a gospel-centered Christianity versus living uh, the Christian life in the power of the flesh? Yeah, this is a really good question because a lot of a lot of people seem to believe or feel that when you start talking about life, a gospel-centered life or a gospel-shaped life, that somehow you're minimizing sanctification. And that is just absolutely not true. Um, because the same gospel that saves us is the gospel that shapes us. Now, I got to say, if I had heard that statement 10 years ago, I would not have known what it meant, okay? And so this is, to me, it's a it's a it's a wonderful process of discovery. It's it's massively transformational, but um, understanding the gospel does not motivate me to sin more. So any emphasis of grace or liberty that causes me to sin more is not an understanding of grace or liberty. It's a perversion of grace, and it's a perversion of the gospel. So. The gospel does not say you're saved, so now it doesn't really matter how you behave, okay? That what the gospel says is, look at what Jesus has done for you. Look at who he has called you and made you to be. And, and when you look long enough at that, how does that make you want to respond? And, and, and the natural response to the, the lavish, extravagant, spectacular love of Jesus is how do I say thank you and how do I honor that? 
because the last thing you'd want to do, if I jumped in front of a bus and saved one of your children, okay, and I got hurt by that bus, but I saved the life of someone you love, the last thing you'd want to do is scorn that sacrifice or that love. The last thing you'd want to do is gossip or slander about me. In fact, anytime you heard somebody trash talking me, you'd probably get defensive and say, hey, that guy saved my daughter's life, okay? So that's why I say grace does not motivate us to sin. It doesn't motivate us to abuse our liberty. No, actually, it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so the way the gospel impacts our sanctification is that it drives it from a pure source. Okay, so someone that is um, growing in real sanctification versus someone that is working hard at sanctification. On the external, on the outside, they may not look a whole lot different. Um, you know, just practice-wise, they may actually look the same. They may do the same things and behave the same way. But um, the, real, the real question is, what's driving that? What is the motive? Is it just outward conformity? Is it peer pressure? Is it the environment that I'm in that's kind of, is it my hard work trying to conform to what I think a good Christian is supposed to be? Or is it organic? Is it real? Is it, is it authentic? Is it really being driven by new desires that the Holy Spirit of God is creating within me? Um, and that's, that's where the difference lies, is one requires a lot of effort the other requires a lot of patience and dependence. And for me, in my understanding of it, it's been a lifetime journey of just even understanding that, you know, mm. it's not that I'm not, it's not that we don't put any effort into it. It's that we don't um, depend on our effort. We're not glorying in our effort. We're not taking credit for our own growth. The sanctification that is really driven by the gospel is the sanctification typically you can't see or measure, but other people can. Mm. And mm. Um, it's, it's when other people go, you're different. Wow, you're so different than you used to be. And I'll tell you what else it is. It's not uh, standards of appearance or behavior. It's first and foremost, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, faith, temperance mm. is, you know, so like, when somebody crosses me, when somebody offends me, when somebody bothers me, when somebody attacks me, when life doesn't go my way, what comes out of me? You know, is it love, joy, peace? Or am I short fused and, and grumpy and angry and mean spirited? If so, like I could, I could have my hair cut and, and the right version of the Bible and dress all the right ways and go to church and all that, but I could still be yelling and screaming at my wife. So that's not real sanctification, right? Carrie, I like what you said about, you talked about for a moment there, how it's a misunderstanding of grace and liberty. Because I, I think in my own life, I've struggled to not just engage in uh, behavior modification. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, I do start to despise the grace outlook on sanctification. And because it's all in my own effort, and so it's this endless battle that I never win. And as God has begun to change my realization of what the truth is on sanctification, it's got a lot more internal mm -hmm. and yet it's been a lot more painful. You would think it was the opposite, but 
all of a sudden, as and I like what you said too about you don't you can't measure it, but others can. Mm-hmm. I I love that because it speaks to the importance of the local church in sanctification. You can't do it on your own, but in the context of the community that God ordained for the Christian to be a part of, they can help you do that, and they can hold you accountable, and they can show you the way and help you grow, and they can actually tell you you're doing what God wants you to do because they can see, like you said, it's not just an external checklist because we can all look the same on that, but somebody can look at you and actually see that guy looks more like Jesus than he used to. That's a really good way to say it. Gospel-driven sanctification is, um, it is organic and it is born out of brokenness. So you're right that it's painful. Because it's 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 a humbling, breaking process. It's it's a purging process, and it's this it's deeply God driven, and um, it's painful. It's humbling. It's it's uh, a breaking of me on the inside. Whereas contrived sanctification is born out of effort, and lead lends itself to pride. Okay, so look how good I'm doing. Look how I look. Look how hard I'm working. That's that's effort-driven, you know, performance-based sanctification. It's not really sanctification. It's, it's just the show. Okay, I'm performing, um, but it's not. It, it, when you really let the gospel break you and shape you, the the spirit of God through the gospel, um, it's a breaking process. So you're right. It's it is more painful, but it's more real. And therefore, ultimately, it's more joyful. One of the things that I've struggled with as I've been on this journey to understanding New Testament sanctification, the way that the Bible teaches it, is not only realizing how different that needs to look in my life, but struggling to break the habit of judging others by an external checklist because that is how the process of my life has gone. In other words, as I have struggled strived to follow Christ. This is what I've seen in my life. So that's what I should see around me or they're not on the right journey. I hope I'm saying that in an understandable way. What would you say to, because I know that's part of my sanctification too, is to, is to stop, is to stop obsessing that way. What would you say to somebody who's struggling with that? You're, you're beating up the right, uh, the right questions and topics on this because Effort-driven, behavior-driven environments are very comparative. In fact, they're built on comparison. How am I doing in comparison to others? Which means the first thing you notice about others is how they're doing. Because there's this subconscious script that's always playing out. I'm here more. I'm serving harder. I'm working longer. I'm dressed better. I'm, I'm, I'm dotting every I and crossing every T. I'm, I'm walking the line and you're not. And that, that, so we're always, we're always categorizing people. There's insiders and outsiders and there's, you know, the people that are the most loved in in those environments are the people that are, that are the hardest working and the most uh, visibly conformed. It, it, it really builds environments that are toxic with competition, comparison, and those talk, those environments um, work well for for high-performing people for a while, okay? Uh, but it's the struggling people that they can't last in those environments. They can't compete. And they end up falling away. They end up giving up. You know, I can't, I can't do this, okay? Um, so 
the gospel breaks that. The gospel, first of all, keeps me from comparing myself to others or evaluating others. There was a day of my life somewhere around seven years ago where I stopped even looking or noticing what anybody wore to church. And I'll never forget the day. I got in the car and I looked at my wife and I said, you know what just occurred to me? And she said, what? I said, I, I, if you put a gun to my head, I could not tell you what anybody was wearing today. And I looked at her and I just felt like God had broken me free from something. Mm. It was all this. I've been taught all my life, you know, how you dress for church. Mm. And so therefore I noticed who didn't. Right. And man, I started noticing people and, mm. and mm. Wow. My, my, I think my biggest regret of my ministry before that, I was thinking about it again today was so busy with events and activity and and program and so focused on the outward appearance that I didn't cultivate the depth of relationships that I wish I had, you know? I mean, my heart was pure, but boy, did I have a lot to learn. <laughs> I had to go through a lot of breaking to to discover how, how messy I was, but you're right. Uh, it a performance-based environment is very competitive. You're always noticing how you're doing compared to other people. In a gospel environment, you don't even think about it. Yeah, I love what you said, noticing people, because I see that in Jesus's ministry over and over again, whereas the people around him, the Pharisees, sometimes even his own disciples, <laughs> were so busy pointing out, look what they're doing, look what they're not doing, noticing all of the trappings around an individual, and Jesus always just zeroed right in on the person. Right. Mm. The other thing along That's those good. lines that I notice about Jesus, you you can't escape. If you just read the gospels, like you're reading a book, like you just read them all the way through instead of little bits at a time, you can't escape how gentle he was with everybody except his diabolical enemies, <laughs> the people that were trying to kill him. Okay. Right. Now, when I say that, uh, inevitably, the people, you know, the, the 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 naysayers will pipe up and go, "Well, what about when Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan?'" <laughs> okay, I'm not saying he didn't rebuke them, or or bring correction. In that case, he was rebuking Satan. Okay, um, and and you know where Peter stops and Satan begins. I'm not even going to dive into that theological quagmire. <laughs> all I know is this: his disciples all failed him miserably, and he did not yell and scream at them. He lovingly, he baked, he cooked fish on a fire and brought them back to himself and put them back in the ministry. He was gentle and patient and loving and gracious. And boy, do I want to be that way. And I, I am now more than I used to be, but I still want to be that. So Amen to that. To derail the conversation there. No, that is excellent. It's wonderful. Maybe we should just let that float out there for a little bit. Let that soak in some. <laughs> Carrie, along those lines, one of the things I've struggled with is what does outreach look like for a Christian that's captivated by the gospel? One of the things as technology has changed, as human life has changed, I mean, we're living in a year even where all the rules are, are changing. What does gospel outreach look like for a gospel-centered Christian? The simple answer to that question is it looks like a lifestyle and not a program. 
Now, I'm not against programs. We have programmed outreach at our church, okay? It's mm -hmm. it's not uh, constantly programmed. But, um, you know, someone's going to take me to task for saying that because I'm not attacking the programs. I'm saying that outreach is more effective. It's more fruitful. It's more fun. Um, when it is organic as a lifestyle during my day, all day, throughout the day, throughout the week. Um, and what I'm speaking from is, uh, 43, let me, let me, let me look at the big picture. 43 years. I've been a Christian. Okay. Of those 43 years, about half of that time, I was a part of programmed outreach environments maybe, maybe two thirds of that time. And, and about a third of that time, I've been a part of environments that uh, the outreach was still emphasized. It was just emphasized differently. And, um, the fruit that lasted the longest and that was uh, the most fruitful seasons of my life have been when I was more focused on outreach as a lifestyle than I was doing outreach as a programmed part of my week. So I'm not against the program. I am for a lifestyle that um, is bigger than the program. Mm. And my experience is that when it becomes only a program, like a, like, like one part of my week, then I tend to go do it, check the box and then forget about it the rest of the week. Uh, but, but in my life and world, especially the last eight years, I've led more people to Christ, discipled more people and seen more fruit in terms of outreach um, through what I would call an organic um, lifestyle approach. And let me say one more thing on this. It also looks more like a team effort than an individual achievement. Okay. So I believe with all my heart that you know, again, some of the environments that I've uh, been exposed to since I was a child were, again, comparative and competitive. How many people did you win to Christ last month? You know, uh, it, like notches on a gun belt. And, uh, you know, how many people did you get baptized? How many people did you, you know, bring into the church, bring down the aisle? Um, and th that kind of competitive, comparative thing is just so toxic. It just sucks the joy out of it, to be honest with you. Um, the, the people in the last uh, season of my life that I've seen come to Christ, it's really been, here's what I say to our church. Um, our biggest outreach program, our biggest outreach ministry is our Sunday morning service because people walk in and they are there of their own free will. They've been brought by a friend. They they're loved, they're cared for, they're served well, they are blessed by the music, they hear the word, they hear the gospel. So they hear it declared and they see it on display in the culture of the church. And when, when, a, when a lost person walks into a gospel-shaped Christ, um, where the spirit of Christ is alive and the gospel is running free, they feel a love 
and and the presence of God, they that they they, they feel a kind of love that they've never experienced in any other environment. Mm-hmm. It's very common. I see these very people in our service moved to tears, and they don't even know why. Um, but wow. they they're attracted to it. They come back. They come back. They come back, and often they're saved a month later, two months later, six months later. Um, and that's another thing I'll say about programmed outreach versus a culture of outreach. Programmed outreach is is a lot of times focused on a one-time gospel presentation, which I'm not opposed to, by the way. <laughs> Better one time than none. Um, but most people do not accept Christ the first time they hear the gospel. You're right, right. And so there is very deliberately a a, de- a design to it that it's relational, and you're you're. There are five or 10 people that are attending our church right now that have not trusted Christ yet, but we love them. We've shared the gospel with them. We care about them. They know their next step is to trust Christ. They're just not there. And and yet we've cultivated a relationship that they are coming and growing and learning and asking. And so uh, to put it, what I've said, I've kind of given you, I think like a three-point outline. It it looks... (laughs) less programmed and more like a lifestyle. It looks less like um, like an individual effort and more like a team effort. And it looks um, like development of ongoing relationships more than just a one-time gospel presentation. And if you didn't listen or didn't accept Christ, you're dead to me, you know, and I move on. So those are mm. my three thoughts. Yeah, it sounds what you're describing sounds a lot more like discipleship and a whole lot less like a pitch. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is yeah, I mean, somebody in New England, okay, if I if I go out and knock on a door, first of all, I'm I'm irritating people to no end. They hate it, okay? <laughs> They're why are you at my step? What what are you doing here? Okay? So I'm already underwater in terms of credibility. And and irrit- you know, I'm irritating them. But then right there to try to get them to to, to turn on a dime, their whole life value system. And, you know, they, they do look at that, like, what kind of snake oil salesman are you, you know? Um, and I, I live in a culture, in a world, I don't know about others. I can't answer for other churches, but I live in a world where um, they want to know that we care about them as people. And they want to be able to ask thoughtful, actually pretty substantive questions. Um, I led a, a young man to Christ a, a few weeks ago in my office that the first time I shared the gospel with him was one year ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, he reached back out. I, I told him, here's my number. Call me. Come see me anytime. You can ask me any question you ever want to ask. He reached out and he said, I can't stop thinking about what you told me that night. Can I come see you? You know? Wow. And I said, absolutely. So, and he trusted Christ and he's you know starting to grow. So um, you're, you're right. It, it, I'm again, please, and I want your listeners to know I'm not attacking the program. I'm not attacking the one-time presentation of the gospel. I'm for it. Okay. I'm just not for that only. I think it's I think we're missing the boat. Um, right. It can be it can be structure that helps teach and reinforce a gospel outreach for a church, mm-hmm. but it can't be the whole gospel outreach of the church. It's not a right. It's not a box that we check. 
to your point, it actually enables you to just check the box and then stop being a disciple yourself and go mm-hmm. back to regular life as opposed to if I'm doing this everywhere I go, then I'm then I'm always a Christian. I'm always a disciple of Christ and I'm always looking for the lost souls. You're always on the clock. You're exactly right. I had a repairman come to the house uh, last week and uh, kind of a funny story. My kid, my, my, my boys got me and my wife last Christmas for Christmas and an original Miss Pac-Man machine. I mean, <laughs> nice. this is like 30 years old. Okay. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's right next to me in my basement right now. And, um, it was our Christmas gift. This goes way back to my wife and I dating. Well, the machine broke and we found this guy in New Jersey that could come fix it. So he comes up to the house and, uh, it's kind of a funny story, but after he fixed the machine, I'm like, I'm going to share the gospel with this guy. So I start talking to him and cause we just really hit it off and he was having some trouble in his life. And he, I, he listened to the whole gospel. I gave him a done book. I gave him the link to the videos. I've been texting him every other day. He's about halfway through the videos. He, he left that night and he, he texted me after he left and he said, thank you so much. He said, I'm so glad we met. He said, I feel like I didn't just fix your machine. I feel like I made it a new friend. Wow. And I said, that's exactly right. I texted him back. Me too. You know, let's stay in touch. And now that was, I don't know, that was a week ago or so. And we've been in communication every other day. So I would not have even thought that way if, you know, back in college when I was just on the programmed, you know, outreach model. So Mm. anyway. I'm thankful for any outreach that anybody does. So I'm not trying to be an opposition party to somebody's program. You know, I just, um, I just know that there's great fruitfulness if we can create a culture in the church. Let me say it in one more other way that I say it to our church. So the Bible has two phrases that I love, go and tell and come and see. Okay. Mm. Um, Go and tell. And come and see. And sometimes I hear people pit these two lines against each other. Okay. Like we don't do come and see. We believe the Bible says go and tell. Well, I'm sorry. The Bible says both <laughs> come and see a man. Okay. Yeah. Um, and go and tell. So I like to say, go and tell them to come and see. Okay. Um, but so here's the deal. I can, till I'm blue in the face, I could have an outreach conference, seminar, uh, soul winning training, every week for my church family. And no matter how long I say it, a relatively small percentage of my church family and yours and anybody else's is actually going to go out and share the gospel with somebody. Now, I hate that. I It drives me crazy. Okay. I don't like that. And I don't accept that as, as, as a good thing, but it's true. Okay. So, how do I help those? But, but by the way, those people still care about lost souls. It's not that they don't care. So my question as a pastor is, how do I help that person who's scared to go share the gospel? How do I help them do outreach? And so what I've said to them is, look, that's why you have a church. That's why you have a pastoral staff. That's right. why you have all this resource. Go invite your family and friends to come and see. And until you're comfortable speaking the gospel yourself, bring them to hear it or call me and one of us will come and share the gospel with them. In fact, the young man I just told you about that I led to Christ a month ago, a lady in our church, she he was a client of hers and she called me and said, Pastor Kerry, I'm not comfortable sharing the gospel with him. Would you come meet with him? 
Okay. So here's what I've discovered. 100, it, well, maybe not 100, 95% of my church family will go out there and say, come and see. And um, you can argue with me about go and tell versus come and see all day long and you win. Okay. You win. Go and tell. But what you can't argue with is the fruit that's happening at Emmanuel Baptist Church right. <laughs> because Amen. people yeah. are bringing their neighbors and their family and their friends to hear the gospel. And I've told them, if you bring somebody to Emmanuel, they're not going to hear about politics. They're going to hear about Jesus mm. and how to be saved. And that makes mm. people want to bring their friends. I really like what you said when you were talking about the gospel for sanctification, how it changes how you see people that can't help but spill over to those who are not Christians like you've been talking about because you see that I'm not enough. Like I'm still a work in progress and you know that you have something you can tell them that can tra totally transform their life because of what Christ is doing in you. Yeah. And you realize it's not of your own work. It's what Christ is doing. And that would radically transform anybody who's wanting to become a better witness for Christ. So think of the word conditional versus unconditional. Okay. And you, you can break down gospel shaped growth with that single word. Okay. How does Jesus love me? He loves me unconditionally. The problem is I receive an unconditional salvation, but then I start to relate to God post salvation as though his love and favor is conditional based on my good behavior when it isn't, okay? Now, I understand there's blessings built into obedience, but God has already given me my adoption, my position in Christ, my inheritance in Christ. He's already given me all of his love and the life of his own son. So it's not like God is stingy and greedy and tight-fisted in heaven withholding blessings until I'm at my best, okay? And so living in the gospel is simply relating to God on the basis of his unconditional love. So what that does is it makes my successes the product of his grace. So I wouldn't glory in it. I wouldn't be proud of my success or my growth. And it makes my failures redeemable. I run back in repentance. Why? Because I live in a world of unconditional love and acceptance. He's not going to cast me off because of my failures. And, he, and he's not going to give me, he's not going to be any better to me because of my successes. Um, I have all of his love. Okay, now, if I live and relate to God on the basis of his unconditional love, I'm going to naturally turn around and relate to others unconditionally. And mm -hmm. so it goes both ways. If I'm relating to God, in in on the basis of a conditional sense of his acceptance, then I'm going to relate to others that way, both those that I'm performing for and those that I expect to perform for me, okay? But if I'm really living in that unconditional love and grace, remember the story that Jesus told, the parable of the servant that was forgiven, that massive debt, mm -hmm, then he turned right. around and started putting a stranglehold on the guy that owed him money? Yeah. Like, how could I take the unconditional love and grace of God and turn around and be such a slave driver of, of people? You know, um, the reason a lot of leaders 
are driving God's sheep. The reason there's a problem with abusive authoritarian leadership is that those leaders think God is that way. And Mm. so they're turning around and driving people the way they think God is driving them. And um, I mean, if you just take that word unconditional, if you're really experiencing God's unconditional love, then you're going to give unconditional love and grace to other people. And uh, that, that creates in them a re- it creates a culture in your church environments that is really conducive to growth and to real discipleship because it's a, it gives a long runway, a long, uh, a long road of growth and maturity. So it's amazing what you've described, how really when it comes down to practice, when it comes down to the way we have lived Christian life, how much all of it is connected to what we believe the doctrines there and the of grace of of unconditional love of god how connected that is with the way we treat others it, they're inextricably linked and when there's a problem in the practice it almost always goes back to a problem in the belief even if we verbally state that we believe it it hasn't worked its way down into our heart at an emotional level where we actually are accepting the unconditional love of God mm-hmm. so that we're freely extending that to others. That's amazing. Yeah. And responding to it. You know, I'd say to our church mm-hmm. family all the time, if we can't get there by loving Jesus, I don't want to get there any other way. So like, there's a lot of ways mm-hmm. I could leverage people to do stuff, you know, that, and, and every pastor wants their church family to do sure biblical things. But I just tell them, don't do anything you can't do in response to the love of Christ and because you love him, you know? So I, I say to them all the time, the, the, the whole Christian life, giving, serving, growing, attending church, reading your Bible, anything, it is all simply, I love you too, <laughs> period. Like, mm. because God has shouted from heaven throughout the ages, I love you, period, unconditionally, I love you. And so whatever you do for him, it's just a response of love. That changes it for me. I th- I don't know who I heard say it, but somebody I heard somebody say one time, if you see God as your boss, you're never going to measure up. Right. You're always going to be falling short. But when you see that God is your loving Heavenly Father, it's like what you just said. Everything is out of that I love you too lifestyle because of all that he's done for you. Right. That actually... You may have actually said that in a podcast. I'm not sure. I don't know I don't who said that. I, <laughs> I don't know. I I talk I talk so much. I forget stuff that I say. But I don't. Doesn't sound like something I've said. But it. But I believe it. I think it's a great statement. Whoever said it. Yeah. Take it for yourself, Josh. Just make it yours. All right. Well, it's official. <laughs> that is my statement. Kind of shifting gears a little bit, Carrie. I know a major part of your story is your diagnosis and battle with cancer. Mm. I know that that part of your life. God used that situation in your life to really minister to me to see how you walked through that trial. And uh, even the book you you wrote through all of that, uh, I know that's been a huge impact upon your life. How does the gospel, though, how does the gospel change how we approach challenging and, and difficult times? Because when we're recording this, to those of you listening, it's still 2020. So <laughs> we would call this the year of suffering. So how does the... How does the gospel change how we approach 
the suffering that comes into our lives? Um, so the gospel, the word gospel means good news. Okay. And, um, the whole narrative arc of the Bible, the Bible is, is primarily a, it's first and most essentially a narrative of redemptive history. And the gospel is center to that narrative. Um, and, and like I said, the word means good news. Now, Paul said in first or second Corinthians 15, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I understand that. Some people want to scale it down and go, that's the gospel. Don't talk about anything else being the gospel. Okay. Well, the problem is that the whole Bible leads up to, points to, references, predicts, prophesies, pictures the arrival of Jesus. Okay. I mean, it's like all pointing to him. Um, and then everything after the resurrection of Jesus flows out of it. So everything before Jesus points to him, leads up to him. And everything else after him flows out of it. Like the gospel is the center of the whole story. And the gospel is not only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but all of the implications of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay. Which is, it's, it's like saying the Lord of the Rings is only about a ring. <laughs> yeah, it is about a <laughs> ring, but it's a whole lot more to it. Okay. Um, and not only is it much more intricate, it, it's much more beautiful than a ring, you know, it's, it, there's, there's, it's layered, it's nuanced. So, so good news, the centerpiece of God's story is good news. All right. So how does that change suffering? It changes it this way. Um, when God broke into time and space, he came to say, I know your life is hard and I know your life is flawed and failed and broken but there's good news. Okay. So now when the doctors diagnosed my cancer, it took six weeks to find out what cancer I had, what kind of cancer. And then once I found out, I went back to my doctor and he said, okay, this is Hodgkin's lymphoma. He said, it's cancer. People die from it, but there's good news. We can cure this. And he said, we have very good chance. Statistically speaking, you're young, you're healthy, you're strong you're going to beat this. Give me a year. I'm going to take over your life. Then I'm going to give you your life back and you're going to live a long life. He actually said, and you're going to go pastor your own church, <laughs> which was wow. kind of funny because he was a Muslim. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and he laughed at me when he said it and we still are friends. We still communicate. I still share the gospel with him. Um, he prophesied to you. What's that? <laughs> he prophesied to you. He really did. And actually years later, when we were talking one day, he said, so you're pastoring your own church, huh? I said, I sure am. He's an Ethiopian. <laughs> great. He said, I told you, you know, um, <laughs> but, but he, he showed me there was good news in the middle of the bad. So the gospel changes suffering this way. It me, uh, no matter how bad my suffering is in this life, there's good news. It gives my, it gives my suffering a purpose. It writes my suffering into God's bigger story. It means that God's going to work all good things in my life from my suffering and in the lives of others from my suffering. And he's doing something that's eternal in scope. So suffering in light of the gospel moves from being bad luck to being an assignment. Okay. It moves from being just negative circumstances to actually being a sacred stewardship 
of opportunity that God has given to me. And it and and so it literally becomes a platform for not only of hope for it, it not only becomes a source of hope for me, the gospel holds me in my suffering. Okay. Like Jesus said to the disciples, he said, I'm gonna die. Now I'm paraphrasing all this. This is like Luke, somewhere between Luke 12 and Luke 18, Luke 16 or something. It's when he's it's the last six months of his ministry, and he's instructing his disciples about his departure. And he's saying to them, they're going to bring you before kings and magistrates, and they're going to persecute you, and and some of you they're going to kill. But he says, don't be afraid of them that can kill your body. Um, And then later in that same passage, or or right before that, I can't remember, he says, not a hair of your head will perish so possess, you'll possess your soul. So when you put all that teaching together, it's irrational. He says, um, they're going to kill you, but don't worry. They, 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 all they can do is kill your body and not a hair of your head will perish. Hmm. So because of the gospel, I know I like, I don't have any hair right now, but somewhere <laughs> I do, you know, like somewhere I've got a full head of hair because Jesus said not one hair would perish. Okay. So the gospel gives me hope in my suffering but the gospel makes my suffering intricate to my life assignments. Um, and the, the proof in the pudding for me is that cancer gave me all kinds of opportunity for ministry with people that I would have never had. And still to this day, it does. You just mentioned the book off script. I mean, I can't even begin to tell how many people have shared with me that book impacted them. Well, that was born out of cancer. So a lot of times I say the biggest five blessings of my life are my salvation, my wife, my kids and grandkids getting to Pastor Emmanuel and cancer. (laughs) Those are the five biggest blessings. Wow. It was a miserable year, but God did a, a bunch of really good stuff from it. So Jesus said, in the world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Mm. And so wonderful that the gospel ends with there will be no suffering. You yeah. Know? There will be no pain. And so it's always in all of what you've said, the, it's, it's so great to know it's, it's not forever. Mm. Yeah. It makes my suffering temporary, gives it a purpose, yeah. gives me God's strength in the middle of it. Mm. Um, so the gospel, in my opinion, is everything when it comes to suffering. Hey, one more thought on that, by the way. The gospel means my suffering is never God punishing me. And that's probably Mm. the most important thing I can say. Mm. Because we say, well, wait a minute. What about chastening? Chastening is not punishment. Punishment is not chastening. They're different things. Jesus took my punishment. So there's nothing left to punish me for. And if there is, then we got a real theological problem because Jesus must not have paid at all. Mm. Um, So God God doesn't accept. God, God doesn't is, accept two payments. No, exactly. So God is not pouring out anger on me. Okay. Mm. Now all suffering has a chastening component, but the word chastening is the same as the word nurture in the New Testament. It is um, for its growth. Okay. Punishment is simply exacting uh, the payment for the crime. Chastening is nurturing me for its correctional and, um, it's fruitful, you know, it, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So 
yeah, I often think of my own children when I think of chastening and I think I would never discipline them to harm them. Right. I would only discipline them to show them truth and to show them grace and to show them kindness and all the things we want them to have. And God, if he's a father and he's a good father and we know that he is, then it's the same thing. That's amazing. We conflate the two words in our modern vernacular, you know, punishment Mm -hmm. and correction and chastening, all those words we kind of mush together. God, but they're God, different. God corrects and chastens us, but he does not punish us. Yeah, that's really good. I know that that's a temptation when you're going through anything. And here in First World America, we're really bad about seeing everything as some sort of punishment. Some sort of yeah, pers- punishment and saying, well, I didn't give enough this week, so my air conditioning went well, out. We've, yeah. yeah, we've been taught <laughs> that. We've, you know, the worst things a pastor can say in the pulpit is if you don't give your tithe, God's going to get it one way or another. That is so bad. It's unbiblical. Right. It turns, you know, what kind of jerky, selfish, petty God would that be? You know? Um, mm-hmm. and, and why should I love him? How could I love him if he's that cheap with his love? Um, so yeah, it turns God, it turns my life circumstances into karma. Mm-hmm. Yes. You get yep. what you deserve, right? You know, and if good things are happening, you must be doing pretty well. God must be happy with you. And if bad things happen, like your car breaks down, ooh, you must have ticked him off. Um, but that's not the God of the Bible. Right. It's the God karma of a lot a, of pulpits, but not the Bible. <laughs> mm, yeah, karma is a product of false religion. It's yeah. actually a completely unchristian idea. That sure is. That's an amazing thing. And, and to think that when anything difficult comes into my life, that to sit there and wonder what have I done wrong, it almost robs the love and grace that God is is trying to extend to us in the middle of it. Right. Well, and I think some of that too is informed going back to that boss, Heavenly Father narrative. Yeah. I think a lot of that's informed by the fact that we live in this world every day that if I make my boss happy, mm-hmm. I'll do better. Yeah. And if I fail my boss, I could, I could lose my job. I could get demoted. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of that is informed by the culture that yeah. we don't understand. That's not how God, God works in our lives. Now, we need to put a caveat here for your listeners. There is such a thing as self-inflicted suffering, okay? And the prodigal son would be a good example of that. So he's in the pig pen suffering because of his rebellion, right? He ran from God or from the father. Was the father punishing him in that pig pen? No, that was the natural outcome and consequence of him running from the father. So self-inflicted suffering calls for repentance, like get up and run home. Okay. And Mm -hmm. you'll be welcomed back into the arms of the father. Um, But circumstantial suffering apart from my decisions does not call for repentance. It calls for patience and faith and hope, you know? So, you know, again, punishment is out of the equation, but there, there is such a thing as did, did I get into this predicament by dishonoring and disobeying God? And if so, then I need to repent and run home. Doesn't still doesn't mean he's punishing me. He might be chastening and calling and correcting, but um, so I, you know, I don't want your listeners to think that there isn't such a thing as that self-inflicted suffering. Well, Kerry, I think I can speak for, um, I know I can speak for Josh and I, as well as many of our listeners. When I say we all feel like students tonight, we've uh, been so enriched by 
this conversation. Um, before we go, I know that you are about to release a brand new book. Uh, why don't you take a minute and talk about that? Man, I would love to. Um, so the book is called Stop Trying, How to Receive, Not Achieve Your Real Identity. It actually kind of, it's kind of written around a lot of the themes we talked about tonight. Um, it is published by Moody Publishers. It releases January the 7th, and um, it will be in digital format, paperback, and audio, pretty much anywhere books are sold. Um, so, including a few places I didn't know books were sold, but um, I, I pray that it will encourage people. There's three parts to the book, just to give you a quick flyby. It's the, the entire book is built on the, the verse that where Jesus said, he said this a few times, but whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. Okay. The word life there, there's three Bible words for the word life. Uh, zoe, suke, and bios. Bios is um, like where we get our word biology. It's your physiology. Zoe is like like a lifetime or like um, the life that God puts into a person. Suke is your sense of self. It's 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 the original word where we get our word psyche. Okay, so when Jesus said, "If we try to save our lives, we'll lose them. But if we lose our lives, we will find our life." Life, he used the word suke. So. The sense of it there is lose your self, lose your self-definition, your sense of who you are. Um, and so there's three parts to the book, losing, finding, and flourishing. And we introduce in the first part, the first third of the book is heavily philosophical. Um, so it unpacks in modern terms, what is the self? What is the psyche? How do we construct it? Where does it come from? Um, and it really breaks down to either I define me or you define me. Like you define me or I define me. I'm looking to others or I'm looking to myself. Um, and we spend several chapters unpacking that because that's a heavy concept. And then we, I, I start the book by talking about loss. When the bottom of life falls out, whether it's cancer or COVID, we start to ask ourselves, well, who am I now or who am I really or who am I supposed to be, or who do others, you know, expect me to be, or who do I want to be? You know, all these are really pervasive modern questions. And um, I just take the first third to half of the book, and I unpack how the world's programming of building a sense of self, including religion, traditional religious structures, are really insufficient and broken. They're just dead-end roads. And what did Jesus mean when he said, if you really lose yourself, you'll find yourself. Um, and what, he, what he's meaning is, let me break you down and, show, and then put you back together. So the last half of the book is, how does that process work? Like, how does God break us down and redefine us and let us be who he designed us and called us and redeems us to be? So the last part of the book is about having a gospel identity. What is that? How does it form? How does it take shape? Um, so the people that have read it so far, the early readers have responded very positively. So I'm just praying that God will use it. I know how transformational these truths were to me. 
And so I was really burdened to get them into print. And I'm thankful that Moody gave me the opportunity to partner with them. Yeah, I, I know that Josh and I are both really excited to get our copy and read Absolutely. it as well. Yeah, looking forward to it. And if you're listening, January the 7th, stop trying. Well, and when this goes live, it'll already be available. Yeah. It, so this perfect. no this, excuses now. You have to order it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to order it. Uh, one last thing, Carrie. We want to start a tradition when we have guests on the podcast of asking all of our guests um, what books you've recently read that you would recommend our listeners grab a copy of. Okay. So the book I recommend everybody read immediately, like, like right now, is Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God. It will completely... Uh, it's, it's a short book. It's easy reading, but it is compelling. Um, and it is very convicting. Prodigal God. Another book I read recently, I actually did an interview with the author of this book on my podcast that is going live today or tomorrow. Uh, Paul and His Team. It's written by Ryan Loxmo, L-O-K-K-S-M-O-E, I think is how you spell the last name. Paul and His Team. It is a study of the Apostle Paul and the people that served with him, and how he led them. So it's a leadership book about how the gospel shapes a leader. Um, because mm. Paul was a an oppressive, slave-driving maniac. I mean, he was just all aggression. And then the gospel, you know, Jesus broke him down. Right. And he was still a strong leader, uh, but he didn't break people. He didn't leave a trail of dead bodies in his wake. And I know a lot of leaders in today's culture that there's a trail of dead bodies behind them, you know, people mm. that they just mm. brutalized along the way. Um, Paul didn't do that. So that was a really, really good book. Um, those are the two that immediately come to mind. Are there topics in particular you guys are, are talking, are thinking you want me to recommend about? Not really. I mean, that, I think that's, yeah, I think that's good. That's really good. We could just go with two. Okay, cool. Okay. If you wouldn't mind before we close it out, would you mind closing us in a word of prayer? Yeah, sure. Lord Jesus, thank you for Josh and Clay. Thank you for their uh, desire to jump on a podcast like this and put themselves out there and uh, talk about theology, talk about the gospel, talk about ministry. Thank you for their passion. I pray that you'd give them a, a, a large listening audience and a great following and a great influence. I pray that you'd lead them across the paths of people that will just have engaging conversations with them and, and that it this podcast will bless a lot of people. I pray for the listeners that have listened today, that they will be encouraged and strengthened in their relationship with you and, uh, and motivated deeply by the gospel, by your grace, by your love to follow you, to love you and to grow in your grace and to live in that uh, just that extravagant, lavish love that you've poured out upon us. I pray that you would uh, continue to bless our ministries and our families. And, and uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. We pray that you would come back soon. We look forward to um, the consummation of all your promises in our lives until then keep us faithful and patient and growing in grace and loving others better every day. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Well, Clay, what do you think, man? The gospel changes everything. There it is. There it is. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast. Podcast.